And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 28th, 87th day of the year. 278 days remain till this year's over with. It's moving quick, folks. And, of course, we've got the usual list of holidays. Respect Your Cat Day. American Diabetes Alert Day. Burnham and Bailey Day. Eat an Eskimo Pie Today. I don't know many Eskimos that make pies, but... National Amber Day. National Black Forest Cake Day. National Hot Tub Day. I'm all for that one. National Ram Day. National Something on a Stick Day. National Triglycerides Day. National Weed Appreciation Day. Now, I don't know many people who appreciate weed, but go figure. Surf's Emancipation Day. Virtual Advocacy Day. And, of course, it is Women's History Month. Keep that in mind. The uh, interesting thing is how many things happened on this date in history. AD 37, Roman Emperor Caligula accepts the titles of the Principate bestowed on him by the Senate, also known as Little Boots. In 193, after assassinating Roman Emperor Pertinax, his Praetorian guards auctioned off the throne to Didius Julianus. That's the problem. When your guards become too big for their togas, so to speak, they feel they can decide who the emperor ought to be. Well, in 364, Roman Emperor Valentinian I appoints his brother Flavius Valens as co-emperor. Talk about keeping it in the family. 1065, the Great German Pilgrimage, which had been under attack by Bedouin bandits for three days, is rescued by the uh, Fatimide governor of Ramla. 1566, the foundation stone of Valletta, Malta's capital city, is laid by Juan Parasat de Valletti, Grand Master of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. That is a uh, another version of the uh, Knights Templar. 1776, Juan Bautista de Anza finds the site for the Presidio of San Francisco. 1795, Partitions of Poland, the Duchy of Courland and Semigalia, a northern fief of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, ceases to exist and becomes part of Imperial Russia. Russians have always been uh, land-hungry, so to speak. 1801, Treaty of Florence is signed, ending the war between French Republic and the Kingdom of Naples. 1802, Heinrich Wilhelm Matthaus Albers discovers Tupalos, the second asteroid ever to be discovered. 1809, the Peninsula War. France defeats Spain in the Battle of Medellin. 1814, War of 1812. In the Battle of Valparaiso, two American naval vessels are captured by two Royal Navy vessels. 
1842, first concert of the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra is conducted by Otto Nikolai. 1854, Crimean War, France and Britain declare war on Russia. 1880, first Taranaki, Taranaki War, Battle of Where Ica begins. 1862, American Civil War, and the Battle of Glorieta Pass. Union forces stopped the Confederate invasion into Mexico territory. Battle actually began on March um, 26th. Um, the Battle of Glorieta Pass was won by the Union because it destroyed the Confederate supply trains. And without constant resupply, there's no way, uh, if you've never been to New Mexico, there's no way you can continue a campaign without food and water. 1910, Anne Fabry becomes the first person to fly a seaplane. The Fabry Hydravian after taking off from a water runway near uh, in France. 1918, General Pershing during World War I cancels the 42nd Rainbow Division's orders to Rolampont for further training and diverted it to occupy the Baccarat sector. Rainbow Division becomes the first American division to take over an entire sector on its own, which it held longer than any other American division occupied sector alone for a period of three months. 1918, Finnish Civil War. On the so-called Bloody Maundy Thursday of Tampere, the whites forced the Reds to attack the city center where the city's fiercest battles began uh, being fought in Kelvin Congress with large casualties on both sides. During the same day, an explosion at the Red headquarters in Tampere killed several commanders. 1920, Palm Sunday tornado outbreak in 1920 affects the Great Lakes region and the Deep South states. Uh, 1933, the Imperial Airways biplane City of Liverpool is believed to be the first airliner lost to sabotage when a passenger sets a fire on board. But that's kind of stupid. You're a passenger and you set a fire on the plane you're on while it's flying. 1939, Spanish Civil War. General Misio Francisco Franco conquers Madrid after a three year siege. 1941, World War II. First day of the Battle of Cape Matapan in Greece between the navies of the UK and Australia and the Royal Italian Navy. 1942, World War II, a British combined force permanently disables the Louis Gilbert lock in St. Nazaire in order to keep the uh, German battleship Trippets away from the mid ocean convoy lanes. 1948, Cold War, U.S. Department of State releases the Atchison Lilienthal report outlining a plan for the International control of nuclear power. 1959, the State Council of the People's Republic of China dissolves the government of Tibet. 1965, a 7.4 earthquake in Chile sets off a series of tailing dam failures, burying the town of El Cobre, killing at least 500 people. 1968, Brazilian high school student Edson Luis de Lima. Salto is killed by military police at a student protest. 1969, Greek poet, Nobel laureate, Nobel Prize laureate, Georgios Stefarius makes a famous statement on the BBC World Service opposing the junta in Greece. 1970, an earthquake strikes western Turkey at about uh, 23.05 local time, killing over a thousand and injuring at least 1,200. 
1978, Supreme Court hands down a 5-3 decision in Stump v. Parkman, a case involving involuntary sterilization and judicial immunity. 1979, a coolant leak at the 3-Mile Island Unit 2 nuclear reactor outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania leads to core overheating and a partial meltdown. 1979, the British House of Commons passes a vote of no confidence against James Callahan's government by one vote, precipitating a uh, general election. 1990, President George H.W. Bush posthumously awards Jesse Owens the Congressional Gold Medal. 1994, in South Africa, American National Congress security guards killed dozens of Nkatha Freedom Party protesters. 1999, Kosovo War. Surf paramilitary and military forces killed at least 130 Kosovo Albanians in Izbika. 2001, Athens International Airport uh, begins operation. Uh, 2003, uh, Friendly fire incident, two American A-10 Thunderbolt II aircraft attacked British tanks participating in the 2003 invasion of Iraq, killing one soldier. 2005, an earthquake shakes northern Sumatra with a magnitude of 8.6 and killing over 1,000 people. And in 2008, at least one million union members, students, and unemployed take to the streets in France in protest of the government's proposed first employment contract law. Well, it's, uh, that's what I've got for the history at this point in time. Now, keep in mind, not simply because I doesn't, I doesn't, I don't um, make mention of something, doesn't mean it didn't happen or it wasn't important enough to be uh, a historical event. There's no way, you know, one-hour show. I don't have time to mention every event that happened in history. We're going to talk about some more strange crimes and stupid criminals. we got plenty of those. In fact, a lot of them wind up being elected to Congress. Let's talk about uh, what we might refer to as Facebook felons. Um, Mark Missarella, 46, of Staten Island, New York was a uh, emergency medical technician with the Richmond University Medical Center. When he was called to an apartment where a 26-year-old woman had been murdered, he took a photo of the dead body with a cell phone and posted that photo on his Facebook page. One of Massarella's friends saw the photo and called the hospital where he worked. He was immediately fired and then arrested. He was a former highly decorated NYPD detective also lost his EMT license. Basically, it's a, at least invasion of privacy, uh, but it could be uh, considered quite more, um, much more serious event. Let's talk about Paul Franco, 38 of Queens in New York. February 2010, he hacked the Facebook account of his ex-girlfriend, Jessica Zamora Anderson. Then he changed her password and held the account hostage, demanding hundreds of dollars for its return. Zamora Anderson had met Franco 16 months before on Facebook, am I did. They started dating. She eventually found out he wasn't a teacher, but uh, continued dating him because he claimed he had a tape of them having sex and said he'd put it on the Internet if she left him. 
Well, eventually he was arrested, and Zamora Anderson got her Facebook account back. And it turns out that uh, Franco actually did not have a sex tape. And he asked her before they parted permanently if she wanted to take part in a sex tape, and she said no. Well, we got an interesting lawsuit. The plaintiffs were the Cherry Sisters and I was singing group. The defendant was the Des Moines Register, and this was considered a landmark libel case. At the turn of the century, the Register lent a scathing review of the Cherry Sisters Act. The reporter wrote that their long, skinny arms, equipped with talons at the extremities, waved frantically at the suffering audience, and the mouths of their rancid features opened like caverns and sound like the wailing of damned souls. Um, outraged and humiliated, the singer sued for libel. The judge asked the sisters to perform their act for him in court so that he could get an idea of, of the reality, and after he heard them, he ruled in favor of the newspaper. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This next case involved Robert Kropinski, 36-year-old Philadelphia real estate manager. The defendant was the Transcendental Meditation Society and the guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Kropinski worked with TMI groups for 11 years, but he finally sued them with... Um, because he was never able to achieve the perfect state of life they promised and suffered psychological disorders as a result. One broken agreement he talked about, he had been told he'd be taught to fly through self-levitation. And he learned only to hop with the legs folded in the lotus position. Well, the U.S. District Court jury in Washington, D.C. awarded him nearly $138,000 in damages and uh, gave him a thumbs up for his ability to hop while his legs were in the lotus position. Well, sometimes events achieve their own notoriety, so to speak. Let's talk about the, ju the disappearance of Judge Joseph Crater. That's a very famous um, case in New York. He was a newly appointed justice to the New York Supreme Court and a potential appointee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, Crater and his wife were vacationing in Maine in, on August 3rd, 1930, when they got a phone call from New York City. And after the call, he announced to her that he had to go straighten those fellows out. And then he left. Well, he didn't return, and after nine days, his wife notified the police, and a manhunt began. Police searched Crater's apartment and found nothing suspicious, but uh, as, the as the investigation continued, the police and the public uh, <clears throat> were astonished to see Crater's carefully constructed facade just literally unravel. <coughs> Turned out he kept a number of mistresses and been seen in the, around the town with showgirls. More surprising was involvement in graft and fraud and political payoffs. He also seemed as though he'd be implicated in the Ewald scandal, which involved paying for a city appointment. And it was even evidence that Crater had paid for his own appointment to the bench. Now, some folks were sure he was murdered by gangster associates, and others, noting the judge had 
remove files containing potential incriminating evidence from uh, his office just before he disappeared, speculated that uh, political cronies had killed him to shut him up. Or maybe the judge committed suicide and watch his career crumble because of scandal. Well, whatever may have happened, it was assumed that Crater was dead. Well, such was the stress caused by his disappearance. His wife suffered a nervous breakdown and didn't return to their New York apartment until January 1931. Well, she found an envelope in the top drawer of her dresser. It contained $6,690 in cash, the judge's will, written five years before, leaving his entire estate to her, and a three-page penciled note that listed everybody who owed the judge money. It closed with the, the words, I'm very weary, weary, love Joe. Now, the police had searched the apartment thoroughly, kept a 24-hour guard on it since the disappearance of the judge, so nobody could imagine how or when that envelope had gotten put in the, the dresser. Now, the possibility was Crater had intentionally disappeared. Well, whatever may have been the, the reasoning, in July of 1937, Crater was declared legally dead and his wife collected on his insurance. By that point in time, New York's police commissioner believed that uh, Crater's disappearance was premeditated. Now, there were several stories from the Old West where uh, miners talked about meeting a man leading a burr across the desert who gave his name as... Uh, crater maybe so you know interesting point of fact during the middle ages if you murdered a traveling musician that was not considered a serious crime in fact in some cases you were considered to be doing a favor to the community well sometimes what takes place in the courtroom is just plain old stupid. In 1986, a court case didn't go well for Otis Elevator Company. Might have something to do with the fact that the jury on their way to hear the case got stuck for 20 minutes in an Otis Elevator. Similar thing happened at the Pacific Gas and Electric Company in 2000. While on trial for failure to trim vegetation around power lines, a branch fell off a tree and knocked out power to the courthouse. Duh. 1992, the U.S. Postal Service was defending itself against an unemployment discrimination lawsuit. In order to proceed, the defense had to mail a list of expert witnesses from Washington, D.C. to Dayton, Ohio. And the list went uh, by the USPS's Overnight Express Mail Delivery Service. But didn't arrive in Dayton for 10 days. Raised a lot of questions, let me tell you. A production company won a $1.8 million judgment against a former employee accused of stealing the concept for a television show. Name of the show? Anything for money. Well, got a story about a prisoner. He spent the most time in a notorious prison on Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay. And he was a Canadian. It was Alvin, old creepy Carpus. He was born in Montreal in 1908. 
By his 10th birthday, he had fallen in with a bad crowd that corrupted his morals. First arrested for burglary in 1926, old Creepy got hired into an entry-level position in the murderous Barker gang and quickly worked his way up the ladder into an upper management position, increasing gang profits by innovating a successful strategy for kidnapping industrialists for ransom. Victims include uh, William Ham Jr., the Ham Brewing Company. They got $100,000. That's the equivalent of $1.5 million a day. And Edward Brenner, president of the Minnesota Bank. They got 200000 for him, or about $3 million today. As proof of his commitment to the organization, Carpus had his fingerprint surgically removed so he couldn't be traced. U.S. bureaucrats caught him anyway and arrested him in 1936, sent him briefly to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas and finally to Alcatraz. When Alcatraz closed in 1962, Carpus was transferred to McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington where he taught a young Charles Manson, who Carpus called lazy and shiftless, how to play the guitar. 1969, he was deported to Canada, where he died in 1979. Well, you know, a lot of Canadians have come to the U.S. to make their name. William Shatner is a prime example. Let's talk about the Rampart scandal involving dozens of Los Angeles police officers. Rafael Perez was an officer at LAPD's Rampart Division, also a member of Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, or CRASH as it was known, an elite LAPD anti-gang unit. 1998, Perez was arrested for stealing six pounds of cocaine from an evidence room. He was offered a five-year sentence and immunity in exchange for testimony against fellow officers. And, of course, Perez agreed and gave more than 4,000 pages of testimony implicating dozens of his fellow crash officers in drug deals and murders and robbery, even a bank robbery. Perjury, falsification of police reports, extortion, and a lot more. Of the 70 officers Perez implicated, seven resigned, 12 were suspended, and five were fired. Only seven were tried on criminal charges, and just three of them were convicted. Those convictions were later overturned. But the city of Los Angeles ended up paying over $125 million to settle more than 140 civil suits against the city of Los Angeles. In 2000, the crash unit was closed down for good. The investigation found at least three crash officers were on the payroll of hip-hop mogul Marion Sug Knight and his label Death Row Records. In 2007, Perez and two other Rampart officers were named in a wrongful death lawsuit alleging they had carried out the drive-by murder of rapper Notorious B.I.G., now, that lawsuit was dismissed in 2010, and the murder of Notorious B.I.G. remains unsolved to this day. So there's a... Well, quite often, you find out the people who are supposed to be upholding the law are the ones that are breaking it. Well, you know, in the world of organized crime, can't trust anybody you don't have something on. Joe the Boss Messeria was an old line Sicilian mob boss whose ultimate goal was to become head of the mafia in New York. Now, not sharing Messeria's dream, though, or younger family members such as Lucky Luciano and Vito Genovese, they wanted uh, Joe the Boss out of the way, as did powerful uh, mobsters uh, Lepke, Buck, Carlton, Oni Madden. 
When another rival mafiosa, Talvatoria Maserano, began to encroach on Masseria's businesses, Joe the Boss fought back. That was the beginning of a power struggle that came to be known as the Castellamarisi War, during which more than 60 men on both sides were killed. Luciano Genovese secretly contacted Maserano and offered him a deal. If he'd end the bloodshed, then whack Maseria. Maranzano uh, agreed. April 15, 1931, Luciano invited Joe the boss to the Nova Villa Tomorrow restaurant. That was a cheap spaghetti house in uh, Coney Island. Played some cards, and then Luciano went to the bathroom. While he was in the bathroom, two men walked into the restaurant, fired 20 shots in Masseria, and strolled out again. Luciano came out of the bathroom and reacted in total shock and then took over Masseria's crime family. The Nuevo Villa Tomorrow's owner, an Italian immigrant named Gerardo Scarpato, shut down the restaurant and moved back to Italy after that. Six months later, he came back to New York and was murdered. Nobody was ever convicted for either crime. Well, there's an old saying, judge not, yes, ye be judged. Douglas County Judge Richard Jones was suspended by the Nebraska Supreme Court after an investigation of 17 complaints concerning his conduct. Judge Jones had taken to signing court documents with names like A. Hitler and Snow White and setting bail amounts on imaginary currencies. He's also accused of urinating on courthouse carpets and making anonymous death threats against another judge. He claimed it was just a prank that went wrong. And throwing firecrackers into that same judge's offices. Judge Jones contested a number of charges but admitted he threw the firecrackers. He said, I was venting. Everybody has a right to vent. Well, dogged by state investigators into claims he was abusive to defendants, Judge Fred Heen announced that uh, he would not seek re-election. An example of his conduct, a woman convicted of a traffic violation asked for more time to complete her community service because she'd been bedridden on doctor's orders during the final weeks of her pregnancy. The judge denied her request and sentenced her to 44 days in jail. When she protested, she was had a seven-day-old baby at home. The judge said, ma'am, you should have thought about that a long time ago. Well, you know, judges quite often have an, a, an elevated sense of their importance. Now, there are sometimes stories told of odd and outlandish thieves. There were some that dressed up as priests. Police in Serbia said three men disguised as Orthodox Christian priests, complete with false beards and angolic cassocks, uh, entered a bank, gave the traditional Christ is born greeting, and pulled shotguns out of their robes and stole more than $300,000. And as one of them said, as they were leaving, it is better to give than to receive. So, give us your money. Then there's some dressed up as cops. The night of March 18, 1990, two men dressed as cops knocked on the door of the prestigious Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Security guard on duty and let him in and was immediately overpowered by the thieves. 
Made off of several paintings of Vermeer, Monet, and three Rembrandts. Those paintings are worth about $300 million. Still ranks as the largest U.S. art, uh, the art, largest art theft in U.S. history and has never been solved. Then you had some that dressed up as a pair of underwear. Police in Canada announced in 2004 they finally caught the black panties bandit who robbed at least five convenience stores while wearing a black pair of women's underwear over his face as a disguise. What more do they think of next? Let's talk about an interesting story from February 21st, 2012. A man emerged to trick the employees of a Denny's restaurant in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And according to the police report, it was a disturbance, February 21st, 2012, at 4.32 uh, 4 p.m. They arrested Jack. Mr. Simmons was arrested for fraud, disorderly conduct, possession of drug paraphernalia, and possession of an electric weapon. The victim was a female, age 38, from Madison. The, uh, while he never announced he was one of the pros from Dover, a briefcase-toting gentleman wearing a maroon tie and long black trench coat was quite clear. He'd been sent by corporate. He was the new general manager. And he'd worked for the restaurant chain for 30 years, and he was starting his new job right now. Well, the manager was in the process of counting the day's receipts at the Denny's on Thera Road and hadn't heard anything from corporate about a new general manager. Well, he said it was final, and he was going to commence his duties right then. Well, at that point, the manager began making calls up the chain. She was able to reach the man in charge of... Uh, hiring for her location. By this point in time, the new general manager left the office, but not the restaurant, and she shut the office door in order to carry out this important private conversation. While she was on the phone, she waved off the kitchen staff as they rapped on her door trying to get her attention. She was not to be interrupted while talking with corporate. What uh, the staff wanted her to know was the new general manager was cooking a cheeseburger and fries for himself and had gotten himself a soda. He was in the midst of dining when she let him know she knew the gig the jig was up. She had talked to corporate and he was not a new hire. And then she went and called 911. When the responding officer arrived, he saw the suspect walking away from the restaurant. When he was uh, contacted by the police, he told the officer there was a misunderstanding that he was the new GM, but it must have been a paperwork goof. Well, the manager won the argument, and the man was arrested, and the officer found beneath the man's trench coat and suit jacket that he was wearing a stun gun on his belt. The officer asked the man if he had a concealed carry permit, and he said it's in the pipeline. Very cooperative with the officer, but as he was being left from the restaurant, he yelled out that I was eating. This is why you don't dine and dash, kiddies. You know, it's an interesting scenario pretending you're the manager and firing everybody in sight. Let's talk about dumb crooks of the Old West, most of whom were immediately elected to Congress. In the town of Coffeyville, Kansas, 1890, Bob Emmett and Grattan Dalton, along with two of the men, formed a uh, gang of outlaws. They were looking for a big payoff, and 
the fame that went with it. And that could only come from a legendary bank heist. They had everything planned out. They aimed to rob two banks at one time. Two men would rob the First National Bank. The other three would hit the Condiment Company across the street. They thought they'd get double the loot, but they only doubled their chances of getting caught. Instead of traveling to another town where nobody knew who they were, they chose Coffeeville, where everybody knew them. The street in front of the banks was being repaired the day of the heist, and they could have postponed it, but they went ahead anyway. Had to hitch your horses a block away, making a getaway that much more difficult. Well, they were smart. They wore disguises. The disguises were wispy stage mustaches and goatees. One of the townspeople saw the Dalton boys coming and armed themselves. They did steal 20 from First National, but came up empty at the other bank. When they came out of the banks, the, an angry mob was waiting for them in the street. Hail of bullets followed, killing everybody except uh, Emmett Dalton, who went to prison. He emerged from the penitentiary to discover that Dalton Gang's story had been immortalized, but not his legendary outlaws, but his helpless screw-ups. Well, in the early 1990s, Pablo Escobar became the richest known criminal in the world. He was making nearly a million dollars a day providing the U.S. with 80% of its cocaine. Of course, he didn't have a retirement plan, but go figure. Now let's talk about well-known fakes. 2007, a professional arm wrestler named Arsene Lelieve tried to qualify for a lower and easier weight class at a European tournament by sending a look-alike to the weigh-in. Lelieve was caught when officials noticed that his look-alike didn't look anything like him. Duh. In July 2007, Florida passed a law that made it a crime to be a, a fake band. Singing groups in the 19... 50s and 60s were touring the casino and elderly um, heavy statement people who paid to see the drifters were really watching a band with one or two replacement members and a bunch of hired singers. Legislation was introduced by Joe Bowser Bauman of the group Shanana, which made a career singing other people's songs. I used to watch Shanana. Then we got Molly Brewstar secretary at the Catholic Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. She put fake names on her employer's payroll and issued checks to herself. Then she used the money to fly to another state, Utah, where she charged dental work and cosmetic surgery to the diocese. And why would doctors allow her to charge her services to the church? Well, she dressed up as a nun. And they asked her why she kept doing it after getting away with it the first few times. And she said, well, when she was as a nun, she got in the habit. Da-da-da-dum. Well, in October 2017, a 26-year-old Portland, Oregon man named Jason Schaefer caught the attention of police after buying bomb-making materials. When a federal uh, officer confronted him at a probation meeting, he ran to his SUV and drove home only to find more feds waiting on him. So he ran again, this time with several squad cars in pursuit. Well, when they finally caught up with him and surrounded his vehicle, they held up a lighter and a small bomb and declared, 
were all effing dying today. Then he detonated a device, which caused, according to the police affidavit, a federal officer to be struck by glass and a flash from Schaefer's mangled left hand. In addition to the explosives and evading police charges, he was also hit with an assault charge. Well, you know, police have interesting uh, slang. You know what a yard bird is? That's a suspect who's caught while hiding in the bushes. Well, let's talk about the stories behind some of the longest recording prison sentences ever served in modern history. First man we're going to talk about is Paul Gaudel. July 26, 1911. Gaudel, who was 17, broke into the broke into the hotel room of 73-year-old William Jackson. Gaudel, who had been living on his own since he was 14, had worked in the hotel as a bellhop and recently been fired. Rumor had it that Jackson, a retired Wall Street broker, kept a lot of cash in his room. Well, Goodell jumped the older man while he was asleep and suffocated him, possibly unintentionally, but still. He used a chloroform-soaked rag. Turned out the rumor was wrong. Goodell fell out with just seven bucks. He was arrested 15 hours later. He got a prison sentence for 20 years to life. In 1974, after almost 69 years in prison, he was finally granted parole. His only problem was he didn't want to go. They had to convince him to leave the prison. And they couldn't get it done until 1980 when he was 86 years old. Remains the longest time served in U.S. prison history. And they drug him out of the prison, kicking and screaming. How about William Herons? 1945, two women were murdered in Chicago at the scene of the second crime. The killer wrote a message on a wall in lipstick. For heaven's sakes, catch me before I kill more. I can't control myself. Leading the press to uh, call him the lipstick killer. And in 1946, a six-year-old Chicago girl was killed and dismembered. Aaron, who was just 17, was arrested and confessed to the crimes. He was given three consecutive life terms. He died March 5, 2012, at the age of 83, in the 65th year of his sentence. During his time in prison, he became the first Illinois prison inmate to earn a four-year college degree. How about John Straffin? Over the course of three weeks in July and August of 1951, a 21-year-old Straffin strangled two girls, age six and nine. He did it in Bath, England. He'd been in and out of trouble, been in and out of institutions for the mentally defective since he was 10. But he was nevertheless allowed to move about on his own at the time he killed the girls. He was deemed unfit for trial and was sent to a high-security asylum for a term to be determined by the psychiatrist. In 1952, Straffin escaped the asylum by climbing a fence. His escape was uh, noted almost immediately, and he was recaptured within four hours. But in those four hours, he managed to strangle a third girl to death. This one was just five years old. He was tried and convicted and sentenced to death, and the British official recommended to Queen Elizabeth II she give Straffin, who was clearly mentally ill, a reprieve from the death sentence. Well, the Queen agreed, and Straffin's sentence became life with no chance of parole. He died November 19, 2007, at the age of 77. He had served 55 years in prison. 
you know, the it is true that we all have to make a living. You know, finger fingernails and a cut-up Christmas card from a convicted murderer things that you might some people consider collectible. According to the story, Southern California gnaw palm trees and sunshine. It's also the stomping ground for 10% of the world's known serial killers during the 20th century. Among them were Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, who uh, met in prison in San Luis Obispo in the 70s, and after their release, bought a wonderless van they nicknamed Murder Mac. During the summer of 1979, they cruised beaches, photographing and picking up girls, and raped murdered at least five of them. Norris eventually testified against Bittaker for a sentence of 45 years to life. Bittaker, of course, got the death penalty. In the 1970s, collectors have been seeking out memorabilia souvenirs from heinous crimes and killers. Bittaker sold his prison-issued socks, but uh, Norris hoped to really cash in. While in prison, he clipped his fingernails and taped them to a piece of cut-up Christmas card, authenticated to Carl the long handwritten note, his signature, and his fingerprint. Now, it's unclear who or how many people the card belonged to over the years, but uh, it turned up on eBay in 1999. There was one bid, $9.99. Ain't no telling what he did with his winnings. Well, that's talking about turning a profit on other people's crimes. 1974, a man named Ronald DeFeo murdered his parents and four siblings as they slept in their home in Amityville, New York. He was convicted of the crimes and uh, sentenced to six consecutive life sentences in prison. The murder house was later sold for a song to a struggling couple named George and Kathy Lutz, who moved in the week before Christmas in 1975. Twenty-eight days later, they moved out, claiming the house was haunted and Evil spirits had driven him away, also probably caused a fail to murder his entire family. The story they told inspired the best-selling 1977 book, The Amityville Horror, and then the hit film that premiered in 1979. Well, in 1979, sniffing out money, which attorneys are very good at doing, Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber, filed a lawsuit against the Lutzes, accusing him of fraud and breach of contract, claiming that they reneged on an agreement to collaborate with Weber on the book. So where did the haunted house story come from? In an interview with the Associated Press, Weber admitted he and the Lutzes concocted the horror story scam over many bottles of wine. Remember the old saying, how can you tell an attorney's lying? His lips are moving. Well, let's talk about the Bigfoot of crime. Hijacked an airplane, stole a small fortune, parachuted out into the night, and became a legend. In 1971, a man wearing a plain dark suit, white shirt, black tie, and sunglasses approached the Northwest Orient Airlines ticket counter in Portland, Oregon. Paid $20 in cash for a one-way ticket to Seattle on flight 305. Once the 727 was airborne, the man called the flight attendant over and introduced himself as Dan Cooper and handed her a note. Said he had a bomb and would blow up the plane if they didn't meet his demands. He wanted uh, two parachutes, $20,000 and $20 bills. 
So when the plane landed, Cooper kept the pilot and the crew hostage and let the passengers get off in exchange for the ransom. Then he ordered the pilot to take off for Mexico with instructions to keep the landing gear down and the flight speed under 170 miles an hour. 25 miles northeast of Portland, Oregon. He strapped on a parachute, tied the money to his waist, and jumped out of the plane. Never seen again. In the ensuing investigation, the police questioned a man named Daniel B. Cooper, and although never a serious suspect, the police reported they'd inter interrogated D.B. Cooper. The initials became forever linked with the hijacker. The FBI manhunt was, uh, followed, that followed was unprecedented in scope and intensity. Every inch of ground in the vicinity of the purported landing site was searched for a total of 18 days. And it was a humbling moment when after weeks of tracking down leads, the FBI admitted they hadn't found a thing. They had reached a complete dead end. One frustrated FBI agent referred to Cooper as the Bigfoot of crime because there was no proof of his existence anywhere. Cooper had survived. He'd pulled off the crime of the century. Well, the hijacking had caught the, pu uh, the public's attention. Media reports raved about the audacity of the crime and the, the calm, competent way Cooper carried it out. According to flight attendant, Cooper was polite throughout the ordeal, even requesting that meals be delivered to the crew while they were in Seattle waiting for the ransom money to be delivered. Went on to become a folk hero, a modern-day Jesse James. Many books, many of my former FBI agents, provided theories about what happened to him. Some said he was living a high life on a beach in Mexico. He'd slipped back into his former life somewhere in the States, undetected and unnoticed. Well, on February 3, 1980, family picnicking on the Columbia River, 30 miles west of Cooper's Landing area, found three bundles of disintegrating $20 bills. Total of about $5,800. Serial numbers were traced to the ransom. The rest of the cash and the man behind the legend never found. Eventually, the uh, case was closed. Though there are many stories that a um, former member of the Airborne did it. Uh, I mean, everybody had a potential suspect, don't you know? Well, let's talk about um, what you might call a False alarm. In 1999, a 911 dispatcher in Arkansas got a call, but there was nobody on the line. All she could hear was a football game. Hung up and called the number back. Nobody answered. Short time later, it happened again. And again, nobody was on the line. A few minutes later, it happened again. Then it happened again. And then finally again. Dispatchers were called 35 times before police finally traced the call to a football fan who had his cell phone set to speed dial 911. It was in his pocket and it dialed every time he stood up to cheer, which is not as good as the uh, individual who was talking. Uh, he was demonstrating how to use Alexa. And he made the comment that um, it was so good to have, especially if you needed to have Alexa call 911. 3,000 Alexas across the country called 911. It reacted to that statement the way it was made. 
2005, 86-year-old Dorothy Densmore of Charlotte, North Carolina, called 911 and complained that a nearby pizza shop refused to deliver pizza to her. The dispatcher advised Densmore that calling 911 for non-emergencies was a crime and then hung up. Densmore called back and kept calling back. In fact, she called more than 20 times. Well, an officer was sent out to her house to arrest her. Not before being kicked and punched and bitten on the hand by Densmore. She'd also complained to the dispatcher somebody in the pizza parlor called her a crazy old coot. Well, actually, I think she probably was a crazy old coot. Well, you know, sometimes the people that wind up on uh, shows like this when you're talking about uh, strange crimes, demonstrate they're not too bright. A Warrensburg man burned himself and is facing criminal charges after using a lighter to check on his efforts to steal gasoline from a dump truck. That caused a fire and destroyed a forklift. Glenn Germain, 19, suffered minor burns in the blaze when he lit a lighter to see how full the gas can he was filling up had become. The lighter ignited gas on his hands and in the can and gas can fire then spread to the forklift, destroying the vehicle. Jermaine, of course, admitted he was responsible for the fire, telling investigators he'd trying to see the progress of the siphoning process. Duh. Then there's a story about a couple rushing to make a high school graduation ceremony and led police on a high-speed chase that ended when they sped through a train crossing and crashed into a nearby home. Luckily, nobody was hurt. The wrecked car was going to be a surprise present for the graduate, don't you know? Then it was a five-time burglar from Detroit who found himself back in the can, charged with another burglary. How did they catch him? He'd played with some silly putty in the home he just robbed and left his fingerprints in the silly putty. Let's talk about the Rainbow Maniac. The story of one of Brazil's most notorious unsolved serial killings. Thirteen gay men between the ages of 20 and 50 were murdered in Paturas Park in the Brazilian city of Carapacula, near Sao Paulo, between July 2007 and August 2008. Twelve were shot. One was beaten to death in the neighboring community of Sosco. Three other gay men were murdered, and police believe they may all be the victims of the same killer. Killer was dubbed the Rainbow Maniac in reference to the rainbow symbol of gay pride because all the victims are believed to have been gay. Four months after the 13th murder, police announced they had arrested Jarel Francisco Franco, a retired Sao Paulo police officer, after a witness told him he'd seen Franco commit one of the murders in August, on August 19, 2008. Another witness told police Franco regularly visited the park seeking gay men. Shortly after Franco's arrest, police inspector Paulo Fortunato told uh, reporters, we're convinced he's the rainbow maniac we've been looking for, but... Uh, Franco went to trial in August 2011 and was found not guilty by jury in a 4-2 decision. Undercover agents now patrol the park at night, and the identity of the rainbow maniac remains unknown. Well, did you ever wonder when and how DNA became part of forensic science? In 1986, Barry Shack and Paul Newfield were sent a case file regarding a man in a New York prison. Shaq and Newfield attended law school in the late 60s and were steeped in the social justice movements that defined that era. 
As young lawyers in the 70s, they'd cut their teeth on those public defenders in South Bronx where they had worked on the most desperate cases, similar to the one they'd just been handed. Marion Coakley, 30, had been convicted of a violent robbery, kidnapping, and rape that had taken place in a Bronx hotel in 1983. The victim had described her attacker as a dark-skinned black man with a Jamaican accent and a short afro. As she later picked Coakley, a light-skinned black man with no Jamaican accent and no afro out of a lineup. Seventeen people, including a priest, said they were with Coakley at a church meeting miles from the scene of the crime at the time it occurred. But, as you might guess, he was convicted anyway. Well, Shaq and Newfield agreed to look into the file. Blood expert they worked with, Robert Schaller, told him there was a good case to test out an emerging technology called uh, DNA testing. DNA could be used to identify individuals who had been discovered only a, had been discovered only a few years before and had never been used in a criminal case in the U.S. It was being used for the first time in a case in England. Well, Shaq and Newfield tried to use DNA testing to get uh, Coakley's conviction overturned. Didn't work. Not enough DNA could be extracted from the evidence to identify the attacker. But they were still able to get Coakley's conviction overturned by proving his innocence through other evidence, including a bloody palm print on the rearview mirror of the victim's car. Coakley was released after serving two years in prison. Through the use of the technology, though the use of the technology had not been successful, Shaq and Newfield knew it was a game changer. Next couple of years, both law enforcement and science worked to figure out how DNA testing was going to fit into the world of forensics. Fingerprinting took decades to be integrated into forensic science. If DNA testing was going to be accepted, it would have to be understandable to investigators, judges, and juries. And Shaq and Newfield became closely involved with this process. They're credited with integrating DNA testing into a standard part of, as a standard part of forensics quickly and thoroughly. 1992, Shaq and Newfield went on to found the Innocence Project, an organization that provides legal representation to wrongly convicted people. And it's gone down in history. Well, let's talk about quotes from the world's most famous lawyers. John Sterling said, The ideal client's a very wealthy man in a great deal of trouble. Milton Vella said, I'm not an ambulance chaser. I'm usually there before the ambulance gets there. William Kunstler said, This is New York. There's no law against being annoying. Alan Dershowitz once said, the court of last resort is no longer the Supreme Court, it's Nightline. David Zapp said, the adversary system is based on the notion that if one side overstates his idea of the truth and the other side overstates his idea of the truth, the truth will come out. Why can't we all just tell the truth? That would make things a lot easier. And Roy Cohen said, I bring out the worst of my enemies and that's how I get them to defeat themselves. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show be back tomorrow and once again we'll be talking about the strange and the unusual until then this is ken hudnell for the ken hudnell show saying have a truly great evening